and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's the text for today. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I have three points this morning. The first is we have been redeemed... By the blood of Christ. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. My second point is our redemption is the free gift of God's glorious and mysterious grace. Our redemption is the free gift of God's glorious and mysterious grace. And my third point is through Christ, God has reunited heaven and earth. The overarching reason as to why Paul is writing to this church at Ephesus is not specifically clear. We can read details about Paul's missionary journey in Acts chapter 19. We read about some details of Ephesus, but we're not exactly sure the overarching reason why he was writing. In the book of Ephesians, we get some really fine theology, and God gives us a lot of details through Paul. uh, What it looks like to be born again in Jesus Christ how we're saved, how God has blessed us in Christ. In the first chapter we'll look at today, God has blessed us in Jesus Christ. Paul says, one, in our adoption, our predestination. Two, our redemption by the blood of Christ. And third, by the sealing of the Holy Spirit when we believe the gospel. There are themes of Christ's power and his wisdom, how God has saved us and how he expects us to walk now that we have been born again. A lot of these people were Gentiles and they had been enslaved to pagan practice. In Ephesus, there was a lot of people who worshipped false gods and spiritual beings. And you can actually read in Ephesians or uh, Acts chapter 19 that there was a temple devoted to the goddess Artemis. And in that chapter, when we read of Paul's journey, it says that all the people hailed Artemis in great confusion. So it was a place of great darkness. And so Paul teaches us here in Ephesians chapter 6... In this book, how we can fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Perhaps some of these people were tempted to go back to their old ways as they worshipped false gods. And Paul is reminding them, not, not past tense, he's reminding them who they are now. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So here's point number one. We have been redeemed... By the blood of Christ. There was a story of a slave girl who was enslaved her whole life. She was enslaved to unjust masters and rulers. And she was quite miserable. And one day a man goes walking by this auction that she's being put up for. And he was a wealthy man. He was a gold miner and he had recently found a lot of gold. So he had some money. And he looked at this young woman and he saw how miserable she was. And he took pity on her. And he said, I'm going to purchase that young girl's freedom. So he goes and talks to the man in charge. He purchases the young woman. And 
then the time came for them to bring her to him. And so he's introduced to the young lady. And she comes up to him and he says, Woman, I've purchased your freedom. You're free. And she snarls her lip up at him and she spits directly in his face. He wipes the spit off of his face and he says, Woman, I've purchased your freedom. You're free. And he says it again. You're free. And in that moment, reality strikes her. And she falls to his feet. She begins to weep. And she doesn't say, Oh, thank you so much. I'm just going to go live how I want to live because you've purchased my freedom. No, she weeps and she says, Let me serve you for the rest of my life. For you have purchased my freedom at a great price. And this is what Paul is communicating to us in verse 7. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, the implication there with redemption, which just means to purchase back or to buy back. So God is recovering us from something. But Paul is speaking here of the redemption of Christ. Now, we know it because we've been born again. But what have we been redeemed from? There are a few things that Paul wants us to understand in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book. So let's go back to the beginning just for a minute. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden and see what happened with Adam. So God creates heaven and earth. God creates all things. God creates Adam and Eve. And he gives them freedom. He gives them uh, rule and dominion underneath him to fill the earth and subdue it, to name the animals, to be his vice regents on earth. And in the beauty of Eden, he gives them freedom to eat from all the trees except one tree. And he said, if you eat of this one tree, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so we know the story. The serpent comes along, and the serpent starts to question Eve. And eventually the serpent deceives Eve into thinking that she should eat some of this fruit. So she takes a bite, and what does she do? She gives some to her husband. Well, God confronts them. They realize that they were naked. At the last verse of chapter 2, it says they were naked and they were unashamed. But now they've realized the shame of their condition because they have transgressed the law of God. So God finds them and he asks them, Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you not to eat? And they had. And because of Adam's transgression, all of his posterity would be plunged into sin and misery. Because God had appointed Adam as the head of humanity, now because of Adam's transgression, the punishment would be penal infliction of death and sin and misery for all mankind. And this is what Paul is touching at. We look back to the fall and we see now, even present day, when someone's not born again, they're enslaved to sin and to Satan. Let's think of a couple of scripture passages here. Romans chapter 6, verse 20 to 23 says, For when you were enslaved to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have anything to do with righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Excuse me, I said that wrong. But now the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're enslaved to sin, we're free in regard to righteousness, and then God provides a way for us to be saved through Jesus. But Paul echoes here again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So we're enslaved to sin, and then he says it here again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following, here's another one, the prince, the power of the air. 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we see we were enslaved to Satan, who is the Lord of the dead, the God of this age, who blinds the minds of the unbeliever. We see that we were once enslaved to sin and to its lusts and passions, corrupted by Adam's fall. If you'll pull up on the screen, Catechism Question 19, let's look at a couple of these catechisms that we've gone through. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So we, we have fallen in Adam, all mankind is born dead in sin and trespasses. And Catechism Question 22 asks this. What is, the, what is the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? And the answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Or look down with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul describes in verses 11 through 13 the state of the Gentiles before God had offered them salvation in Jesus. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So there it is. You're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. And then look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consider who you once were. Consider before Jesus what you once loved. The God that you once hated. Enslaved to sexual immorality. Enslaved to thievery. Enslaved to lying. Enslaved to self-righteousness, enslaved to disobeying your parents, enslaved to worshiping the creature over the creator, enslaved to loving the, the lusts of the flesh more than you love God, enslaved to coveting, which is idolatry. The list goes on. No man is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No one does what is good. The venom of asps is under their tongue, and the fear of God is not before their eyes. And so the question must be asked. And this is catechism question 23, which we've gone over before. Did God leave all mankind to perish in that estate of sin and misery? The answer, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. When the fullness of time had come, all of creation is waiting for this one moment, longing for this one moment. When the fullness of time had come, God had said, enough of this, enough of this sin, enough of this Satan. And he sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to come and pay the punishment of sin, to reconcile us to God by his death. And he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and laid himself bare on a cross, nails through his hands and through his feet, thorns pressed into his brow. All of these sacrifices made in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they could take away sins for a while, but they couldn't do it in full. 
And so the question is asked, who will redeem mankind from his sin and from his enslavement to the Lord of the dead? Who is going to make it right? And in steps Jesus Christ. And Jesus had come, sent from God as the only Son of God to come and do the will that God had sent him to do. He came and he healed the sick and the lame and the blind. And he casted out demons and and casted out demons who were tormenting people and causing them to cut themselves and to cry out by night and by day. He came and preached the repentance unto life. said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The time had come, the kingdom of heaven had come with Jesus Christ. And all who would repent of their sins and trust in this one man, Jesus Christ, would be saved. But that wasn't it. Jesus Christ was born without sin. He never sinned one time. Whereas you and I always seem to find ourselves in iniquity. Jesus Christ, in all of his thoughts, in all of his deeds, in all of his conversations, in all of his motives, always did what pleased God. And we can't even comprehend something like that. Just the, just the second we start flying with angels in our thoughts and we think, man, I'm pretty good. The next thing, a, you know, a disgusting thought pops into our head. is like, where did that come from? Or why did I do this again today? And Jesus Christ lived the perfectly righteous life so that at the point of time of his death, when he would die on the cross and be buried for three days, God would raise him from the dead. And all who did receive him, who believed in his name, his name, They would become children of God. Now remember, Paul is speaking speaking to these people who have been converted. He's not saying one day when you repent of your sins, one day when Christ will redeem you. He's saying you have redemption through his blood. And this is us today. This is applicable applicable to us today who are gospel-believing Christians. You, I trust, who are in here have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ. And look what Paul says happened when you did. In the middle of Ephesians, verse 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The great chasm of darkness has vanished. Remember in Hebrews chapter 10, our first scripture text we read? The promise from Jeremiah 31 where God would, God would send someone who would make it right. And the Holy Spirit promised that God would remember our sins no more. That he would make a new covenant. And he would write his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds. And he would give us his Holy Spirit. And all of our lawless deeds would be remembered no more. Do you realize what's taking place? Do you realize what I'm saying right now? Through Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you. Of all of your wrongdoings, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and received him him to Lord over your entire life and you have given yourself to him in all the ways that God has prescribed, you're a Christian. You are born of God. You are a citizen of heaven. And when God makes all things new, you're going to live with him forever. You have eternal life. Your sins have been forgiven. Your past sins, the things that you can't even bear to think about. The things that you don't want anyone to know you've committed. You think, oh, only God knows this. I I don't ever want anybody to know I did this. Or maybe something you'll commit today that you didn't mean to commit. Or something you don't realize. Or something in the future that God forbid you fall into. God has forgiven you if you have received Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And Paul says that when you believe this gospel, you were sealed with God's Holy Spirit. Not only were you sealed with the Holy Spirit, 
But you, you have received and will receive an inheritance that God is guarding until glory. Now, all of this is spectacular. But the problem is, is man tends to take God's salvation and try and warp it into something that maybe he can have a little say-so in. And so we'll look here in the next part of this verse, at the end of verse 7. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, I won't speak on this long, but I will say, as I just said, man, man always wants to have some sort of way in on something. And I, I noted that my second point, which is the one I'm talking of right now, our redemption is the free gift of God's glorious and mysterious grace. The New Testament speaks very vividly of the fact that God's salvation is a free gift through Jesus Christ. It says, if, if you will receive Jesus Christ and cry out to him for salvation, you will be saved. The gift is free. It's not earned. But today, people have a tendency to want to say, well, you know, I think... I think I just chose Jesus on my own. And, you know, one day I just decided I was just going to wake up. I just thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to change my ways. I'm just going to start doing righteousness. I'm just going to start doing the things that God loves. That's not how it works. And the Bible is very clear that God's salvation is a free gift. A free gift through election and predestination. And we read that. Look up at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. We read it earlier when I started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, so God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Now he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, I'm not sure why. Some people have a problem with this. Some people have a problem with the fact that God says salvation is a work of my power alone. And people have a problem with the fact that they, they don't have a little something they can say that God, that they have done in regards to their salvation. And so Paul emphasizes this grace even more in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read in this one more time. Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, one of the most beautiful aspects of salvation is that God has freely chose us to be his children. And that doesn't create a spirit of question. It creates a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving. Because you can cry out when you know you have been saved by Jesus. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was enslaved, but now I'm free. I was blind, but now I see. John chapter 1 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And then it says this, Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our salvation is the free gift of God. If if grace has a little touch of human human choosing in it. If grace has a little something that says, 
God saw me, God saw me way before the foundation of the world that I was going to choose him. Well, that makes God's that makes God's salvation based on something that we did. But that's not grace. Grace is not something that is earned. Grace ceases to be grace if it is earned. Grace is a free gift of God. Now notice Paul calls it the riches of his grace. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I think Paul calls it the riches of his grace for this reason. And I'll use this. It's not identical, but I'll use this as an illustration to help. In Psalm chapter 3, I preached this a few months ago. When David flees from his son Absalom, he was a mighty king and his son plots against him. I'm going to take the throne and David's son Absalom like recruited a ton, a ton of men, a ton of ruthless men who wanted to kill David. And they tried to take over the kingdom and hail Absalom as the king. And David, he starts to tremble. And it records in 2 Samuel 15 and 19 that when David fled from his son Absalom, he had his head covered, his shoes were off of his feet, and he was weeping all the way up over the Mount of Olives. David, this mighty king, who a few chapters before, his men were like, you're not going to fight with us because you're worth 10,000 of us. Now he's weeping with his head covered and his feet are barefoot as he's running over the Mount of Olives. And this man named Shimei comes up and starts mocking him. You know, this creepy guy is coming up and yelling at him along the way, your blood be on your head, and he's kicking dust at him and throwing rocks at him. And so you've got this mighty king who's in this poor condition. But when David, even in the midst of distress, goes up onto the Mount of Olives, and he begins to pray, this is how he refers to God. This is how he calls out to God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. My glory. Now that's not the same thing here as what Paul is calling the riches of his grace. But I'm likening it to it because in this moment, this mighty king, he didn't have anything. He had nothing. He went from everything to nothing. And he's crying out on the Mount of Olives. He's terrified for his life. And if God's not on his side, these men are going to wipe him out. But he knows he knows when he prays because God, God answers him. It says in Psalm chapter 3 that God answers him. He says, you are my glory. And so while David has nothing, he has everything. Even, even if David's not weeping on the Mount of Olives, if David is in his throne room and he's got all of his, his wealth and all of the things that God has given him, God is his glory. So whether you are in a stable condition or you're in a weak condition, your glory is the Lord. You, you have nothing, but you have everything. And I think this is what Paul is touching on here when he says the riches of his grace. Like I said, it's not the exact same thing, but in regards to what God has blessed us with in Jesus Christ, he says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you realize that in Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need? You don't need anything else if you have Jesus once you had nothing, remember how Paul described it? You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, not concerned with the business of God, not having any regard for his son or for righteousness. But now you who have been brought near have been saved by the blood of Christ and God has poured out His grace, His, His riches, His glorious grace on you. And you can say, 
I have everything if I have Christ. So, to move on. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So, God has redeemed us by the blood of Christ. God has forgiven us of all of our sin when we repented and trusted in Jesus. Then it says, this was all according to the riches of His grace. And now it says, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. Now let me illustrate this. I think it will help. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let's imagine that there's a civilization of people and they practically have no water. They've got nothing. And so there are miserable people. People die all the time. They practically look like dead people. If you were just watching them, they're trying to till the ground. They're trying to live. They're trying to survive. But they're just, they're just miserable. And there's a great canyon that surrounds this civilization. And they don't know it, but this great canyon is a dam. A dam of really precious water. Really sweet-tasting water. And one day, while the people are going about their business, you know, some people are dying, they're miserable, they're starving, they need water, the dam breaks. And when the dam breaks, it comes lavishing on top of them. It comes pouring out on them so much that it nearly kills them because they don't even know what to do with all of this that's been poured out on him. In essence, what Paul is saying is the dam of God's grace has broken loose on us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus. You want to know what God's salvation is like? You want to tell of his salvation from day to day? Look to the man, Jesus Christ. He has manifested the name of God on earth. All of humanity has been waiting for this one man who in him is all the salvation which many of the Jews resisted and which people today still resist. Would you, would you play with mud pies and be content with lusts of the world and with the things of the earth over Jesus Christ? So which he lavished upon us. He has lavished his grace upon us. But how did he lavish his grace upon us? In all wisdom. And insight. Now I'm going to linger over this for just a minute because I think it's precious. I think it's beautiful. So God has lavished His grace on us in Jesus, but He's done it in all wisdom and insight. Now the Bible speaks of wisdom uh, with humanity different than it does God. So let me use humanity as an example. I heard someone describe wisdom like this, and I, I like it. Wisdom is taking tools and raw materials that you have to build or create something that is in accordance with the way that God has designed the universe. So in other words, there's a right way to do something and there's a wrong way to do something. The right way is always tied to a command or commands that God has given. It's always tied to what God has ordained. So if I'm in a situation, if I'm Uh, in a difficult situation, in that moment, I have the opportunity to take the situation that God has given me and use it in such a way to advance His kingdom and glorify His name or to act as though there's a way that I shouldn't live. So let me give you an example. We went to the garden just a little bit ago, and when Eve was tempted to eat of the fruit, what does it say in Genesis? She saw that the fruit was desired to make one wise. So she took and she ate of the fruit, and in her attempt to do wisdom in her own way, She acted foolishly. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. Because foolishness tries to act like there is no God. There's a scripture that says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. So the foolish person not only says there's no God, but if he's not willing to confess that, he's not willing to obey God's command. 
And so there is a way to do things and a way not to do things. Take Jesus' words, for example, when he says, The wise man builds his house on the rock, but the foolish man builds his house on the sand. Now, though we are imperfect, God does help us to act wisely. In fact, he commands us to act wisely. He commands us to do things in a way that pleases him. But we always seem to mess it up somehow. Sometimes we get it right, but sometimes we get it wrong. And that's because our wisdom is not God's wisdom. Paul here describes God's grace lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let me explain this. If we do things in a sinful way and God is perfect and holy, then when God, when God does things, he does it perfectly. The Bible describes God's creation of the universe to be done in wisdom and in understanding. We have to ask for wisdom. We have to ask for understanding. But God is the almighty God. He lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. So, for example, God has created the universe. And when he's created it, it's been done to perfection. He saw that all things were good. Psalm 104 says that God created the world in wisdom. So God's creation is a perfect example of his wisdom and his understanding. He knows how to create beautiful things. Uh, Another example is his Holy Scripture. We believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, and that it is inerrant, which means that if, if this is true, then the Bible is the living Word of God. It needs no repeat. So when God speaks... He does so to perfection. It doesn't have to be corrected. It doesn't have to be added to. When God speaks, it's sufficient. It's sufficient for all things, and we believe that. What about salvation? And this is what Paul is touching at. Salvation, well, it's perfect. There is no other way that it could have been done. Because Jesus is the only name by which we are saved. And God has lavished his grace on us in the most beautiful way. The culmination of all existence and all reality is the exaltation of Jesus Christ by God. God has made him the name above every name, which means when God saves, he saves to the uttermost. There is no failure. There is no, there, there is a promise from God that if you cry out to him for salvation and you trust in his son, you will be saved. That is the promise. So, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, like that civilization with the great dam that broke over them, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now we as a church firmly believe that God does as he pleases. In Psalm 115, the psalmist is asked, where is your God? And he says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is the almighty God. He does not need our help. He doesn't doesn't have to tell us things. When Adam fell and we fell in him, God was not obligated to save us. Have you ever considered that reality? God is not obligated to tell you the truth that you know. God's not obligated to make you one of his children. He's not bound by your wants and your needs. He, He is the almighty God. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything from us. But the character of our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it says here that when he lavished his grace on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Which means that there was a plan in the divine mind to save humanity. 
There was a plan before the foundation of the world, before we, way before we ever existed. And no one knew what it was. The, the Bible says that if the rulers and the authorities would have known that God was going to crucify Jesus for the salvation, they would not have crucified him. No one knew the plan. No human knew the plan. No spiritual being knew the plan. There are things that God keeps to himself. And in this case, God had kept him to himself until the dam broke. And he told us that his salvation was through Jesus. And he made known to us the great mystery of his will. Now, the last part of this sermon will be devoted to point number three. Which is, through Christ, God has reunited Heaven and earth. So let's read the text one more time. In him we have redemption through his blood. In Jesus we have redemption by the sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice he has made on the cross. And when we repent and trust in him, when we repented and trusted in him, we received the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this was all on the basis of God's glorious and mysterious grace, which he has now disclosed and made known to us for our enjoyment and for his own glory. And then it says here, According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul says when he prays for the Ephesians here, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, when Adam fell, as we just learned, we fell with him, plunged into the penal infliction of death, the consequence of one transgression. We all must die. Every one of us has to face death. But Jesus Christ enables us to face death because he has defeated death and taken that power from the devil. Adam fell, and a time went by where it was kind of quiet, but God had promised in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be offspring of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. You know, you, you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel. And some time goes on for a while, and then God chooses Abraham. And God promises that through Abraham, that his offspring would be as many as the stars, as the sand of the sea. And so then we see that God chooses the people Israel to be his people. And he offers them uh, sacrifices each year that will atone for their sins, but only for just a little while. And then we start to hear of this this person who's going to come and he's going to change all that. He's going to make it right. Moses, Moses prophesies of him. But eventually, Israel would would fail. There was a lot of sin going on with Israel. And so God raises up prophets. And these prophets would teach Israel the will of God. Would tell them what to do. Tell them what God expects of them. Well, what do we learn? Well, the people kill the prophets. Or the prophets didn't get it right. Moses wasn't allowed to see the promised land because Moses disobeyed God by striking the rock in a way God said, don't do that. God raises up priests 
Well, these priests, they help make intercession and they would help the people have their sins atoned for by the sacrifice of uh, the blood of goats and bulls. But what do we read? Well, these sacrifices are not enough to atone for the full forgiveness of sins. And the priest would have to offer them another, another time, and another time, and another time. Just when they'd have their sins forgiven, we've got to do it again. We've got to do it again. And the people would continue in sin. The people longed for a, a man named Saul to be king, and God gave them Saul as the king. Eventually, when Saul would fail, he'd raise up David. David looks like he might be the promised one. Nope, falls into sin. And so on, more with the kings. He didn't take down the high places. Or he went and married this amount of women and they worshipped foreign gods. And it led him off into idolatry. Time and time again, the, the one seems like he can do it and then he falls. And so God raises up judges because Israel decides they're going to live like there's no God. And he uses these judges to execute justice on behalf of the people. And it's just absolute chaos. The judges get it wrong just when one seems like he can do it right. It seems like he can, he can do it. He fashions a gold ring that he has into something that he thinks he should worship. So God raises up prophets. And God raises up priests. And God raises up kings. And God raises up judges. All of these people, though they were not the Christ, they were used to help God accomplish the fulfillment and the culmination of God's mysterious plan, which one day after 400 years of great silence, Israel had come through exile and then things were real quiet. When is this promised one going to come? You've told us over and over you're going to bring salvation. You've told us over and over you're going to execute justice and make it right. And one glorious day, Jesus Christ appears. And Paul says here, According to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In all of the great darkness, all of, all of the darkness from Satan, all of the sin that separated us from God, Jesus bore on himself when he was crucified. Thus far did I come loaden with sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither the cross. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Hail sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue ruined man. Hail matchless free eternal grace which gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky fought with hands uplifted high. I madly ran the sinful race regardless of a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light. I madly ran the sinful race secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. Indignant justice stood in view, to Sinai's fiery mount I flew, but justice cried with frowning face, this mountain is no hiding place. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard and mercy's angel form appeared. She led me on with placid pace to Jesus as my hiding place. Should storms of sevenfold thunder roll and shake the globe from pole to pole, no flaming, do- no flaming bolt could daunt my face, for Jesus is my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for the chosen race. 
and thus became their hiding place. Thus became their hiding place. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me on fair Canaan's coast, where I shall sing the song of grace and see my glorious hiding place. Church, if you have received Jesus Christ, you are a born-again believer, and God's love has been poured out on you. When he sees you, he sees his beloved son. John chapter 17 says that God loves you like he loves Jesus. You are his child. You have been adopted into his family. Remember at the beginning of this passage? In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now to any in here who may not have received Jesus. You know, it may seem convenient to think, ah, I just, not today. Not today. I just don't really, I just don't think I need that. Make it right. Repent of your sins. Do not, do not cling to that mentality. Because while God has made this offer of grace through the salvation of Jesus Christ, He has also said that there will be eternal destruction for those who do not obey Him by believing in Jesus. If you are too prideful to cry out to Jesus Christ, I urge you, change your thinking. Cry out to Jesus Christ. Ask him to convict you of your sinfulness. If you don't feel convicted of your sin, cry out to Jesus and ask ask him to convict you. Ask him to save you that you may become a child of God. Ask him to save you that you may be in our family. That you may enjoy the glorious grace of God through Jesus Christ, his only son. Church, go out this week and enjoy the beautiful truth that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that your salvation, is, your salvation is not on the work of something that you have done. But only on the basis of what someone else has done for you. And go out knowing that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let's pray.